Welcome to the Journal.ie The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Laura Byrne, and this week we're doing something slightly different, and we're sitting down with two people who have experience of what's happening on the ground now in Sudan. We're now a month into a conflict that has turned the country's capital Khartoum into a war zone. Hundreds have been killed, thousands injured, and an estimated 700,000 have been displaced. The situation is becoming dire for the civilians on the ground across the country. Today in studio we have Dr. Sulafa Salama, a Sudanese doctor, a medical registrar based in St. James's Hospital in Dublin and resident here for several years. Sulafa and her two young children were visiting relatives in Khartoum when they became trapped in the conflict a number of weeks ago. They've just returned safely home to Dublin. We also have here with us Dr. Aya Mohammed, who is Assistant Professor and Registrar at St. James's and Trinity College Dublin. Aya was born in Sudan but grew up in Ireland. Her own father, a retired obstetrician in Castle Bar, also happened to be visiting Sudan when this latest fighting broke out. Now you can get the background to the violence that's happening there on a previous episode of The Explainer where we took a look at what is essentially a power struggle between two army generals. But today we'll focus on the stories of Sulafa and Aya. Thanks so much to both of you for joining us today. Thank you so much Laura for having us. Thank you Laura for having us. It's great. So Sulafa, I might start with you if I may. Can you tell me a little bit about how you came to live in Ireland? You and your family have been based here for some years and you're working as a doctor here. That's correct, Laura. So I joined Ireland first in 2018, so just shortly before all the revolution started in in Sudan. I I, uh, came on a a two-year training program as part of my training back home. And unfortunately, all all this started in, to, in December 2018, um, where things just escalated in um, in Khartoum, Sudan, where used to be a peaceful capital. Never, we never, we never thought that these, you know, events would touch us personally until I personally lost my brother in January 2019, which was a shock to me. And then, ever since, like, I don't think cartoon have have seen or or new piece unfortunately uh people were um constantly out in the streets being killed and oppressed by the previous regime until they were successfully you know uh, ousted um unfortunately we only like lived civilian governor or like joined civilian military governor for a couple of uh, years and then the military coup happened again so um that that all was was different story like i stayed in ireland for for one year and then for two years and then i went back home um after uh, in 2020 in in august just after the covid outbreak um it's just like i've i've seen a different capital i've seen a different city it it wasn't peaceful at all it wasn't unfortunately any place to to raise my kids and that's why I opted to come back to Ireland 2021 because I didn't feel that my kids would would be safe there and that like it's it's not a normal life unfortunately ever since. And that was a terrible loss for your family losing your brother. Can you tell me a little bit about the circumstances in which he was killed? Well, um my brother was a junior graduate doctor and um the the people all of the people were against the previous regime and and um, were going out in the streets, and uh, unfortunately, the um, the security forces then, along with the government, were uh, oppressively and 
cold-bloodedly killing the youth and, you know, without doing anything. They were just out in, in peaceful demonstrations, just trying to raise their voices and saying no for all the, you know, the, the, the corruption that was there in Khartoum, really, and, and the poor situation that people were living in. So uh, my brother was out um, trying to demonstrate and show his voice as well as help the people who were getting injured. And uh, he introduced himself as a doctor, yet he got killed by the security forces. We haven't even found justice yet because like, there is, it's, it's not stable there yet. And the, the case was supposed to, to reach the, the court just now before, before April and this all, all the war now broke out. So I, I assume that's going to be on hold now for a while again, which is very unfortunate. And so for a family like yourselves to, to have lived in what you say was essentially a peaceful community all of your lives in Khartoum, which was a peaceful city as you knew it, obviously there were issues. You know, when you lose a loved one like that, who was left in Khartoum then belonging to your family? It was your parents, I take it. And you said you had a couple of sisters. My parents are my three sisters. Now, Laura, I have to highlight by saying peaceful, unfortunately, like the, the corruption was going on the, the previous government were like stopping people arresting them in in a terrible thing and doing all sort of criminal torments really on 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 people of Sudan but people weren't out in the streets that's why we thought it was peaceful but it wasn't really like you know it was going on for I'd say 30 years or more before that. But unfortunately, when the people of Sudan decided to say no for that and, and to go out in the street peacefully to try to start to put like, you know, a limit to that uh, corruption and, and troubles that were going on, that's only when when things escalated and we actually could see the, the troubles in the streets. And of course, we've gotten to a point where there's just all out chaos, really, at the moment. If we if we bring you forward to to the recent events for you, you and your two young children just went out for Eid, I believe, for a month to visit your family. That's that's correct. Yes. So we went uh, to, to Khartoum on the 4th of April, just trying to celebrate Ramadan and then celebrate Eid afterwards. Um, we were only there for 11 days before the war started. And the night of uh, 13th of April, I actually brought my two kids um, for a sleepover over to, to their cousin's house. And um, I was back home at 3 a.m. There was nothing. The streets were quiet. We weren't stopped by anyone in the, in the, in the way back. And I just slept for a few hours, woke up at 8 a.m. to find the work has broke. Um, I was separated from my two kids for five days because there was bombing and sh- gunshots outside. It was terrible. It was a complete blackout of um, power. Uh, people were panicking. There was lack of food, lack of fuel, lack of everything. And I couldn't, like the, the bridges from Khartoum to, to Khartoum North, where, where we live, uh, were blocked by the uh, rapid support forces. So no one could you know, reach, I couldn't reach my kids for five days and I couldn't help but in each and every minute think what could happen to them possibly or what could happen to me. Um, And like, it wasn't safe at all where we live or where they were. Like, you know, it wasn't that far, but they were in the surrounding of the airport. So it wasn't a safe area as well. And um, a gunshot ended up 
piercing the, the ceiling and landing on a bed just beside the head of one of the kids, like, you know, in the house, in the same room where my kids were were sleeping, really. So it was just terrible for me to think what what could possibly happen and what, what is the worst case, case scenario in this situation? I mean, that is it's unimaginable for a parent to be separated from their children like that and then not have any control about what's going on. And of course, really, at that point, the news of the war breaking out was just feeding out into the wider world, wasn't it? And did you feel that you could even go out onto the street to do the very basic things? Were there shops open? What was the day to day like? No, no way to go anywhere. Like on that same morning, I have a neighbour on the same, you know, residential area who had his both sisters in a school nearby. And he went with his mom because he had to collect his sisters from that school where they were in a Saturday class. And they ended up shot, both of them. The the, the young guy was shot. He was a medical student as well, was dead in the same instant. And his mom died the next day in the ICU for, for nearby hospital. So there, is, there was no way whatsoever that we could go out or like try to reach my kids or try to go anywhere safer. And in terms of communicating then with, let's say, your children were with your relatives on the other side of town, could you pick up a phone? Was there power? Uh, what was the food situation like? So initially there was some phone calls possible, but after that, because of the complete lack of power and um, the, the the lack of internet as well was blocked for a while, so we lost communications. So I was able to communicate with them for the four, first 48 hours, but then after that there was no connection whatsoever. We, we didn't know basically what's going on there. I was just hoping that they are safe. So we're a few days into fighting. You're trying to get to them. How did you eventually manage to reconnect with your children and 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 get hold of them? So on on like you know the, the, the ceasefires that were announced on the news that wasn't actually happening on the the real life because they would say oh like okay there is a ceasefire but like in the truth we could actually hear the bombing we could actually hear the gunshots unfortunately. So on the um, 48 um, hours ceasefire that happened on a Wednesday, then I just decided that, look, this is my chance. I have to get to, through to my kids and I, I have to just to make it happen. And we lived in Kafuri, which is a very badly, you know, uh, heavily ha- inhabited by the rapid support forces. So we had loads of uh, military flights or aircrafts like firing around us and there was like camps of the rapid support forces so we all decided it's best that we all leave our house and and go and stay with you know it's um, our grandparents house so we just decided to go there and stay with them so we took the car we didn't know is it wise or not and we just decided that we, we have to be reunited with the kids, really. So we have to take our chances. You get to the stage, I'd say, where you just say, well, I can't sit here anymore. I have that's to do correct. something. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. So we went there. We were stopped, like, I think over 10, you know, um, times over on the streets, searched and seen. Uh, we were all females, apart from my elderly father. So we weren't heavily, you know, but I've seen people who were threatened and searched very, like, in a very humiliating way on the streets as well. Um, we had to go in a very long distance to, to avoid, you know, the, the areas around the airport and the areas that we knew that they're very badly hit. And we reached we reached my kids um, finally. 
um, and we stayed there until we left Khartoum. I mean, I can only imagine, I mean, your children are going to school in, in Ireland for several years now. So they obviously know Sudan on a level and they were with their loved ones and felt safe on. But they must have understood on some level what was happening. Well, it's very difficult, you know, we, we tried to tell them that there is nothing. And initially we said that, oh, this is fireworks and it's a it's a bit distant. That's why you can't see it. But at some point they could see the bullets and they could see the fightings. And it was very, very obvious that people were frightened. On the first day of Eid, it was a very bad day for us. We were six families because my uncles, my other uncles came as well because this was supposed to be the safe house, like because they were like they, they live in a very bad area as well. So we had six families with the kids and everything staying in one large living area. It was like dark because it was complete blackout, it was extremely hot. It was way above 45 degrees centigrade. And we were all staying on the grounds and we could very clearly, very closely hear the bombing outside and the gunshots. And the reaction of the people in that room was very different. And that's just human nature. You know, some people were like panicking and having panic attacks. Some people were praying. Some people were crying. Kids were terrified. And that was the first day of it. I couldn't just describe how 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 badly we were feeling and that was supposed to be the happiest day of our year like <clears throat> so it was like very very bad feeling and I don't know like it was the worst day of us and and I, I, oh, Salaf, it's unimaginable. I mean, when you think of the, the sheer suddenness of what has happened with this conflict because I know as you say since the revolution there hasn't been much stability and that's understandable but she, to come within the space of 10 days and go from what looks like normality to this level of violence is, is such a huge trauma for everyone that is true yeah and so think just looking still at how you manage you are lucky one of the lucky ones to get out which is wonderful and you're just back with and your children are safe not everyone's been able to do so uh, you did see a lot of people trying to leave Khartoum at the time you were trying to go can you tell us a little bit about what you saw at the airbase when you were trying to leave the airbase condition was a disaster, to be honest. There was loads of people there and they weren't granted access to aircrafts. Um, they were staying on, on like, it's not set for people, for civilians to come and, and you know, flight. So there was no much services there. People it's a military airbase, isn't it? It is I a think, military yeah, airbase in Wadis Hidna. So it was my first time ever to mm -hmm. see it. I don't think would be granted access otherwise, like, you know. People like elderly were staying on the ground. Um, I've asked a lady and she told me that she was there for 48 hours just having a, a piece of carton on, on the sand and sitting on it. And there is no like a canteen or cafeteria or someplace to, to eat from. There is like the, the, the soldiers there were like giving out water bottles for people and to avoid heat strokes and things. It was extremely hot. There is like very few shades or shady areas to stay in. So people there were very extremely exhausted. And I know personally people who were like consultant doctor here in Ireland who was married to a doctor as well, obstetrician, and they were, were their kids. And they're already eligible for the Irish citizenship. It's just not back for them yet. And they were denied access to that aircraft and they had to go through Port Sudan, which is like a very long journey. And 
they they stayed over 24 hours in that airbase trying to to get on that aircraft which didn't make any sense to me to be honest and this really is we'll get to this shortly is this is down to the fact that many of the people who were being taken out of this airbase at the time were citizens only and there's a sort of a gray area there for a lot of people who are living in in, in different European countries. Um, so I, I might bring you in yeah. here, actually, if, if I may. You're a colleague, you're a friend of Salafa's and you two have family and friends in Sudan, some of whom have managed to get out. Yes, absolutely. So I am, like I said, I come at this from a little bit of a different angle from Salafa. So I grew up in Ireland. I've lived in Ireland since 1990, moved around a couple of places, but primarily grew up in Castlebar. My father is an obstetrician there. So Ireland is very much my home. It's where I'm from. But I have, I got, I, I spent my summers in Sudan and my entire extended family is there. Aunts, uncles, my grandmother um, are all there. So my father happened to be there. He's retired recently with COVID and he was there for Ramadan, for Eid, just generally enjoying his retirement. And the plan was for him to come back actually on the Saturday when the fighting broke out. And he had a fairly straightforward evacuation compared to others and that he was he was there on the he got out on the first day so he um got out on the first day was evacuated via the french plane which left from so he had to that congregated at the french embassy which is in the most prominent part one of the most affluent parts as all embassies are um in the city so i think once that somebody has somebody there's were really badly they're really badly hit but they're all really prominent affluent neighborhoods in the center of the city this, this tends the, to be where the power struggle happens absolutely. in these contexts and the yeah. reason why Kafuri and the Ramarat and all these places were targeted is because prominent government people live there. So that's really where it is. So we're not talking about the sticks here. We're talking about the center of Khartoum, the heart of the city. So it was very, so where the French embassy was, was somewhere where a lot of my friends, a lot of their families had lived and they'd evacuated. So I knew that there was a lot of bombing going on in that area. So I was terrified about him just even getting to that area. Um, but thankfully he did. He made it. Um, he was there in the embassy. And once they hit a capacity of 180 people, they, there were 50 people who were left locked outside of the embassy. People who had been told to come. They Email. They had emails that received that said they should turn up at 11, turn up at 12, turn up at 2. Took a lot of personal risks to get there and then were locked outside of the French embassy in the most dangerous part of Sudan at that stage because of all the fighting that was going on. So that was my initial issue. Um, and people, very close family friends, one of the people who was there is somebody who would have grown up with me. Um, our fathers would have been friends and would have all worked together. So I knew these people personally. And I, that kind of where... That was my first issue, really, with the evacuation. Um, so they ended up then getting taken via a via French convoy, French soldiers to Wadi Said, now the airbase, and then they were evacuated to Djibouti initially, and then after that, everyone was told to make their way um, home. It's such a long journey for someone like your dad. I mean, Massive to journey. be retired and yeah. trying to relax and enjoy a break, and the, just the sheer frenetic nature I mean, of my father is a 70 like. year old man he's a diabetic um luckily i had a friend of mine who grew up here actually and she she was evacuated with her three children um so she was with him but she i I think other for her and the snacks and the drinks that she brought him through there, I don't think he would have made it, to be honest. A military airplane is not an easy thing to ride, but it's something that we take on, you know. Um, so he he just, you know, there are very few options. But in the end, we got him via kind of Djibouti to Ethiopia and then from from there on in to Cairo and just kind of phased his trip back simply to make him, to, for him to be able to make it. But I have, I mean, my uncle, my mom's brother, his, her youngest brother is in Khartoum. His three daughters are, he's an Irish citizen, his three daughters 
are Irish citizens. His wife is half Irish, half Sudanese. They're living in Belfast. He was there because my grandmother's passed away recently. And my aunt, who is my grandmother's primary carer, is there on her own. So he didn't want to leave her. Um, so that is somebody who's a direct. Otherwise, I have cousins, uh, you know, aunts, uncles who are now scattered out of the capital. But um, yeah, I have one of my best friends was there. Um, she's a psychiatrist. She's um, there with her two children. Just went there for Ramadan for Eid. Lives in Kafuri, the same neighborhood as Salafa. Um, and then ended up having to leave Kafuri and go to one of the rural areas because it just wasn't safe for her and her kids. So people have been streaming back slowly. And thankfully she made it back. She evacuated. And your father is home now in Obviously. the West. Yes, he is. He's back. He's back in Castlebar. Um, and he's doing good. He's shell-shocked. I'm sure, you know, there's no one to about that. But it's to be, you know, ex expected. Yeah. For someone like your dad who knows Sudan so long and has been through all of the years of mm dictatorship and, ha and and has lived in, an in, in the west of Ireland. What does he think of what's going on? He is utterly depressed. This is, I mean, my father is the most patriotic Sudanese person ever in the world. And I, for years, I used to wonder how he even managed to live outside of Sudan and wondered why he picked Ireland. And I think the reason why is because there's a lot of similarities between Ireland and Sudan. There's a lot of similarities in terms of importance of family, importance of community. So he felt at home here in a way that he didn't in other countries that he had lived in. He spent some time in Saudi and the UK and so on. So his dream was just to be able to retire in Sudan, to come over and back. I mean, I'm here. All of my sisters are here. We're all working. We're all in college. So for him, both places, I think at this stage would be considered home, you know, in that he is over and back. Even when he was working here, he was he was somebody who would go to Sudan every two, three months to either see his, you know, his mother, his siblings. Um, so he is... There's definitely a lot of survivor's guilt going on. He's definitely quite saddened by what happened. He's optimistic. I think he's always remained optimistic that Sudan will make it. Um, but he's he's really, really sad. And just in general, it's, it's hard to leave your brothers. It's hard to leave your, you know, your siblings, your parents, your, you know, and just say goodbye, you know, and not know when you're going to come back or what's going to happen. So, And I think, you know, we're, we're all very familiar with these stories playing out in the global media and, and the energy tends to shift after all of the Western evacuees mm -hmm. have left. And then, you know, who's left in Sudan? Well, the Sudanese people are left in Sudan. And mm -hmm. you mentioned lots of contacts and friends and loved ones who have scattered. Have mm -hmm. they, have many of them gone to Port Sudan? Have they tried to get out of the country or are they within Sudan itself just trying to get out of Khartoum? Yeah. So they're within in Sudan, I think it's really important that people understand that a lot of people don't want to leave Sudan. Like this concept that everyone's here just waiting in line, waiting to get to Europe is, is not the case. A lot of the people that I know are Sudanese, want to live in Sudan, have families, communities, businesses, their whole lives are in Sudan. And they have for years had family members, whether it be me, whether it be Salafa, and they've never had any interest in going because Sudan has always had its troubles, but it's all it's home and always has been and will be. So a lot of people, are, it's not even an option for them. You know, like they're going to go somewhere more rural where it's safer. But this concept that everyone is just looking for the next way out of Sudan is just not true, you know. Um, so everyone has kind of gone back to where generally they're the equivalent of what I keep on telling my, telling my friends being like it's the equivalent of living in Dublin and going back to Kerry or going back to Mayo or going back to Lingal, going home home, as I call it, um, back to their roots just for safety until hopefully everything 
clear us up and that's what everyone's hoping for just for everything to quieten down in Khartoum for them to get back to their lives and I obviously yourself and Sulafar you're in touch with loved ones in Sudan every day and we see that things are not getting any better you are particularly concerned about a number of Irish medics who are Sudanese but Irish residents who cannot get out of the country yeah, so I'm I'm worried about everybody, but we're particularly worried about these. Um, they're all friends, colleagues of ours. They are Irish doctors. They're Sudanese doctors. They're working in Ireland. They're Irish residents. They are taxpaying people. The majority of them, I would imagine, will be citizens in the next couple of years. It's just a matter of time. And they are still there. I mean, they have not been able to access evacuations. A lot of them because of the leg. First of all, the evacuation took a week to happen. I mean, you're not going to stay a week under constant bombardment, not knowing if you're going to be evacuated also. And it's not like people told us that that was going to happen. I like I got a phone call at half eight in the morning on the Sunday saying the evacuation's happening. So people had to take matters into their own hands. And then even when the evacuation did happen, we were told very clearly in all the documentation, it is for citizens and citizens only. So for you to take and and the part and that participation in the evacuation was at your own risk. So, I mean, that is if you're somebody who has their passport in their hand, that is a lot of my father had his passport in his hand and he was ready to go and he and we were still really concerned about him for you to take that risk to be sent back which is something that happened that to me is really unacceptable you know so that's kind of where my gripe with the whole evacuation process was in that it's if it's not a humanitarian thing which it isn't just from a transactional point of view these are doctors they're working in hospitals they have a role there there are roaches that have spots that are empties they have children in schools that are missing you know missing days at school people who are part of the society working important parts of the society and everyone is important regardless of what your job is but just from that point of view I felt like there could have been a better effort made to find where the people were what we could do and how we could get them there as opposed to just participate at your own risk and it's at the discretion of the member states. That was the line that I was getting the whole time. Um, so they're there, they're still there and there's absolutely no reason for those eight people to be there. And do you think that it was unfortunate like Sulaf and her young children that a lot of people were in the area because of family celebrations, yeah. because of Ramadan and Eid? Ramadan and I keep on, like this is just like Christmas. I mean, if anybody goes to Dublin Airport at Christmas or the entire month of December, everyone flies in. It is the exact same. Everyone flies in from New Zealand, flies in from the States. We all have English cousins and American cousins and they all come home for Christmas. It's the exact same thing. So that's part of it. Um, so this also this narrative of, well, I mean, why did you guys go to a war zone? It wasn't a war war zone when we went there. You know what I mean? Um, there's been a history of violence and issues in Sudan, generally in the more rural parts. So it's, so people went to spend time with their families. Ramadan is the exact same equivalent of that run up to Christmas. It's a really special, sacred time. And this is the third year in a row now that's been stolen from us by these people. Um, the last 10 days of Ramadan as well are a really special time um, for, for Muslims. So even if you didn't get there before, you were going for the last 10 days and you were going for Eid. And that's why so many people were there. So it's, you know, and they went to a an international airport in a capital city to a safe place. And this ad hoc fighting really started that no one had any pre, you know, pre-warning for. Um, so these eight doctors are there. And from my point of view, there's the only reason that they're there is just a lack of political will and a lack of action from the HSE to get them back full stop. And are you in touch with them? You say there's eight left. So yeah. somehow I'm in touch managed to get out. Mm -hmm. uh, you've been in touch with a lot. Yeah, I'm in touch way. with some of them. Um, some of them I know personally. Like me and Salafa, you know, we work in the same place. We, we're lunch buddies. We're, so some of them I know just through friends 
and some of them have been in contact with me. Do you know what I mean? Like directly via WhatsApp, via stuff you've just heard that, you know, OIA's dad was on the evacuations, you know. So, you know, people are just having to do what they have to do. And that's another thing as well. There's a lack of, of guidance, I find, from the Department of Foreign Affairs um, to, you know, to these people. They're, they're hard, you know, they're hard to contact. It's very hard to contact anyone at the moment, to be honest, with, with the communication issues. Um, but it should have never, this is a month onwards, it should have never gotten this far. They should have, they should be home two weeks ago. You know, like I thought Salafa was home late, let alone these people. Um, so there's definitely a lot that could have been done better. I should mention that we contacted the Department of Foreign Affairs and on the matter and they said, so to date, 250 Irish citizens and their dependents have been evacuated from Sudan and that's in cooper cooperation with Ireland's international partners. And they say that in general, our international partners have evacuated only citizens and immediate dependents. So we're reliant on them, obviously. For now, then they're saying all evacuation flights from Sudan have ended. But they do say they're aware of the cases of the Sudanese doctors with visas for Ireland and that they're maintaining contact with as many as possible. But as you say, if the evacuations aren't happening, there's very little anyone can do if you're if you're in a war zone. It, uh, bar just keep in touch and try and pass on advice I'd imagine is what If the Department of Foreign Affairs had done what I was screaming for them to do on every Claire Byrne show last week on RTE News which is you know we don't expect the Department of Foreign Affairs to know the ins and outs of Khartoum and how to get to people but I do expect them to liaise with people who are on every airwave telling them that we know where the people are we know what you know we, we know where for you, we know where you guys need to go um, and they didn't so yeah it's 200 is great but it's not good enough you know like the, 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 just that simple like we can do better there was an opportunity to do better for example there were english embassy staff in the hotel in port sudan i don't understand why there was why there weren't staff members from the irish embassy in kenyan in, in the hotel in port sudan talking to irish citizens seeing what was going on leading them giving them advice there were real moments really good moments actually i thought from the irish government of people who were able to bring certain dependents and real moments of humanity and real wins real glimpses of what it you know, what the Irish spirit and, and things that weren't happening, the, like the Canadians weren't doing them, the Americans weren't doing them, the British certainly weren't doing them. But at the same time, there it could have been better. It could like there's no I have no doubt about that. It could have been better. So what do you think the Irish government could do from now on if there isn't a structure there? Should they be sending someone then to Port Sudan? Port Sudan seems to be still operating yeah. as a place. It's difficult to get to. Exactly. But there is a, a, a route out of yeah. there. So there is a, a plethora of things that they could be doing. The first thing is... Um, I don't like comparing tragedies to each other. I think that human tragedies are human tragedies. So this discussion of, is it like Ukraine? Is it like, I'm, I'm, that's not something that I buy into. Everything is different and everything is, any loss of human life is tragic. But what I will say is, is after the Afghani evacuation, after the United States left and after the Afghani um, evacuation happened, and we all saw how that didn't go as well as we would have liked it to, within seven days, the Department of Justice introduced or announced that they were going to introduce an Afghan admission program, which essentially, A, broadens out the definition of a dependent. A dependent as it stands is a spouse or a partner and children below the age of 18. This basically was, it was brought in six months later, but it was announced within a week. Now it's four weeks since this has started and I haven't heard any announcements from the Department of Justice that basically, why don't we have a Sudan admission program? Why, which basically means that it's not, it's essentially you are means tested. 
So the, you, you, it's like a visa program. So you can apply for, and they extend out the definition of dependent. You can apply for cousins, you can apply for parents, you can apply for siblings. The, the Afghan admission one, it was four people, four dependents maximum that was, that, that were allowed to come. And you had to apply, show that you could A, support them while they were here, show that you had housing to support them while they were here. So it's not a free handout, which everyone thinks that it is. It's essentially a legal visa system that is kind of put into play during a major war issue to allow people to seek refuge while the country is safe for a wider scope of dependence. That is something that if the Department of Justice did tomorrow, if, the, if they're asking for things that they can do, they can do that. And we can get people out via Port Sudan. It's safe. The airport is back up and running. Hopefully there's, um, you can get it, kind of get it via ship. Give people the opportunity to apply for visas for their loved one so that they can come here and give them a legal route for them to bring their families to refuge until things calm down and we can go from there. And when you mentioned your dad, you said, you know, one of the things he's feeling after getting home is the survivor's mm. guilt. And it's an, an entirely human response to something so traumatic. And Salafa, when you when you left your family to come back to Ireland with your two young children, you have your parents are still there and your two sisters. How are they doing? Are they still in Khartoum? Have they managed to get out? Well, when I when I heard the news that I can safely go to, like, you know, the airbase, I was crying my eyes out because I felt so guilty that, you know, I'm leaving my parents, my sisters in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the wars. And like, I might never be able to see them with an unfunctional airport. And that like, you know, I might just go out now and just hear bad news about one of them, like, you know, and not being able even to go and like, you know, pay condolences to, to the rest of them. So I was feeling very badly and I, I even said, oh, maybe I won't go. And they pushed me out. It was like, at least we know you and your kids are safe and then we can, you know, freely move outside of Khartoum. Thank God they are out of Khartoum now and um, hopefully they are safe, but like it's not easy as well. Like, you know, they are the, the, the cities, the towns of Sudan are not set for, you know, welcoming large number of mm -hmm. people, despite the welcoming people, they're hosting them in their houses and everything. But that's not convenient, especially that we don't know how long this is going to go on. So that like I would be I would be very happy to host my parents at least here with me. And like there is no way to apply for a visitor's visa now because the, the Irish consulate in, in, in Khartoum is locked, obviously, and it's in the middle of the worst place in in Kafuri, like it's in my neighborhood. So there is no way it's going to function anytime soon. There should be some sort of an alternative pathway for me to bring over my family, like, you know, at least. And I'd like, I'm happy to host them in my house. I'm happy to to uh, sponsor them and everything. But I just need to know that they are safe and they're close by, like, you know, even for a while until this is over. And they're the rules as they stand. Like you can't, that's the rules now. If, if under normal circumstances, Salafa were to bring her family over for, she would need to apply for a visa and she would need to show her bank statements. She'd need to show her letter of employment. She'd need to show where she lived and to prove that she has the ability to look after these people while they're here. So that, I don't see why that is any different other than the fact that obviously it's now a war zone, basically. So, it, you know, Sulafa could provide all the all the evidence, but her parents could not. We could, that's something that could be worked on. There are people who have got, who have applied for visas for their families and their, their passports are locked in the Irish, in the Irish consulate in Sudan. So, so now, so now even their families cannot leave to go to another country because they don't have a passport. Like, I would like to know what, what is the Department of Foreign Affairs plan for these people? I know somebody who's a doctor is working here who applied to bring his wife over and now her passport is in the Irish consulate. What is the plan for him? We need 
need to know what the plan of the Irish government is to offer. We need solutions for these people and we need them yesterday. Like there's the, the time element of it because tomorrow that, that man's wife could be in her house and a bomb could come into her home. And who's going to answer for that? And I guess it really is important then to highlight that you're talking about people who not only live in Ireland, but also work in the health service here. They worked through COVID. They're very much your colleagues, but they're also embedded in Irish communities. People were clapping for them during COVID. Last time I remembered, we have, there's a very, I mean, I'm a doctor, so is a doctor, but there's a big um, engineering community now. Ireland has imported the best of Sudan. It has imported the most educated. It has imported the most professional, the best people in Sudan. And there are people who are providing a service where no one else did. My father did nothing but deliver babies in Castlebar for 30 years. He can't walk into Tesco without you know, being stopped by a million women on the way. He can't walk into a bank without knowing every bank manager. And I, the silence is just absolutely deafening. Like I've lived in Ireland since 1990. I mean, Sudanese people are one of the main minorities in Ireland since then. We were one of the earliest minorities to come to Ireland. Um, there's over a thousand Sudanese doctors registered with the Medical Council. And like I said, there's a big number now of engineers, of people coming who just, well, it's quite an insular place, so we know each other really well. But, you know, it's really, really broadening. And I would like people to to really, really change their view of what it is and what it looks like to be Irish, you know, because I am, Sulafa's kids in 15, 20 years are going to be like me. So as far as I'm concerned, I'm Irish. Like I'm, I'm Sudanese and I'm Irish. And I love the fact that in Ireland, we are really open-minded and you can be whatever you want to be in Ireland now, which is how it should be. You can also be black and Irish. Like that's that's what it is. And just as much as Joe Biden is the son of Balana and everyone was so happy to have him here, I am the daughter of Castlebar. And when we look at recent events, Saudi Arabia now leading the peace talks and they haven't really come to much yet. Do you think there's much hope of any sort of a peace deal when you talk to people on the ground there? I'll leave this to Salafa. I personally have very little hope right I, now. But I, I, I think like all, all the, despite all the efforts of, you know, Saudi Arabia or USA or anyone else, but like the fact on the grounds is that the rapid support forces have raped people, have raped women, mm -hmm. have broken into houses of people that I know. And if they took everything, they've stopped one of my friends, my neighbors, and they took off his phone. He, they took his, everything and they asked him to run. And then they, they shot on the airs and he was like, he, thank God they didn't kill him. They could have very easily. And like many, many lots that I haven't mentioned today. And I like we see all these news every day and I don't see any any hope for like this ending soon or any ceasefire or any peace. I, I don't see it. I just basically don't see it. And what hope there is for me, my big concern is you know, it's all good for there to be talks in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia hired the Rapid Support Forces, hired Himeti as a mercenary army group, as foot soldiers. That's a conflict of interest in itself. Do you know what I mean? Egypt being somebody else who obviously is our neighbor and I'm sure is, has vested interests in Sudan being stable or not. But I mean, Egypt also has its own agenda, has its own kind of things. The EU, I mean, last time I checked, the EU gave over 160 million or something like that euro for to the RSF to control migration. So all of these people, like there has been a failure of diplomacy in Sudan. And I'm not like, I have very little trust in, in the actors who are, who are taking part in these talks because they all have conflicts of interest. And I mean, Himeti got where he got because he has been normalized. He has been funded. He has been trained by the Sudanese army and by, you know, and by the likes of Saudi Arabia, by the likes of the EU. So it's, 
yeah it's, and, it's, and I think personally that the expansion <laughs> that happened over the last few years of the rapid support forces is is about training as well like mm-hmm. these acts that are happening from their you know soldiers is because basically that they're randomly recruited people they're not properly trained they just like have money and they give people like weapons Mm. and now they're using it the wrong way obviously they're not like the national army where people are trained and properly ranked it's just like a a family who recruited other people randomly and gave them weapons and that's the, the that's the problem with this situation really that's why this is happening in sudan they're robbing they're raping they're doing what all sorts of crimes really and well, all I can say is a big, big thank you to both of you for coming in today to share your stories. And Silafa, it's just great that you and your family are home safe. And we're really grateful that you shared that experience with us. Thank you for thank having you so us. Much. We really appreciate this Thanks, chance. Million. Thank you. You've been listening to the Explainer podcast by thejournal.ie. This episode was brought to you by producer Nikki Ryan. If you'd like to support all the work we do here, head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to make a one-off donation or become a monthly subscriber. And of course, you can always leave a review and a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.